calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Lightspeed. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I am your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. Today's story is Falloon the Illimitable by Matthew Hughes and read by Alex Hyde White. This story is copyright 2014 by Matthew Hughes. Matthew Hughes writes science fantasy. His SF novels are Fool's Errant and Fool Me Twice, Black Brilliant, Magistrum, The Commons, The Spiral Labyrinth, Template, Hespira, The Damned Busters, The Other, Costume Not Included, and Hell to Pay. His short fiction has appeared in Asimov's, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Postscripts, Storyteller, Interzone, and a number of Year's Best anthologies. Nightshade Books published his short story collection, The Gist Hunter and Other Stories, in 2005. Formerly a journalist, he spent more than 25 years as a freelance speechwriter for Canadian corporate executives and political leaders. His works have been shortlisted for the Aurora, Nebula, and Philip K. Dick Awards. His webpage is at matthewhughes.org. And now, buckle up. We're going to Lightspeed. Falloon, the Illimitable. Written by Matthew Hughes. The estate of Falloon, the so-called Illimitable, was in most respects much like that of the budding thaumaturge Diomedo Obron, Erm Caslow's new employer. It had a large, solid house, some remote outbuildings, lawns, and a lake, clumps of mature trees, and an all-enclosing wall. What made it different, Caslow saw as he surveyed it from a hill in the middling distance, was a rocky prominence that stood in the estate's northeast corner. He had come to his vantage point by a roundabout route, 
leaving a nondescript rented air car an hour's walk from the hill on which he had spent the day and which he had scaled from the far side. He was lying on his belly just short of the summit, where a leafy bush grew. Beneath the bush he had placed a compact device that was bedecked with an array of surveilling percepts trained on the territory below. Before he left Obron's estate, he had also decanted his integrator's core into a garment that resembled a plump scarf, and now wore his assistant around his neck. After closely surveying the estate's powerful but concealed defenses, he told the integrator to concentrate the surveillance suite's attention on the northeast corner. "'What are we seeing?' Caslow said. "'By outward appearance, a geological folly,' said his assistant, "'as if the man has built himself a hill.' "'Is it definitely artificially constructed?' "'Definitely.' There have been no geological processes in the area that would account for it. More to the point, although the exterior resembles a naturally occurring mound, the interior is built of stone blocks arranged to create rooms and corridors, staircases, and subtly camouflaged windows. There are also two subterranean levels, one of which resembles nothing so much as a dungeon. Caslow studied the schematic his integrator caused to appear a hand's breadth before his eyes. So we can probably discount the notion that Sir Fallon intends to be a wizard of the benevolent persuasion. Yes. The rooms are not empty, though most are undecorated. They have been furnished with items from the main house. In fact, a carry-all is now on its way from the manse to deliver kitchen utensils and food stores. The device showed Caslow an image of the ground vehicle trundling across the open space. That's making a mess of the lawn, isn't it? The heavy tires gouged parallel ruts in the deep green sod, whose perfection must have needed centuries of mowing and rolling. What does that suggest? The same as the construction of a false hill that has a dungeon. That, Sir Falloon, like the Omado Obron, has gone insane. Caslow's response was a creaky rumble in the back of his throat. It was a noise that meant he was thinking through a situation and coming to a dark conclusion. He told his assistant to maintain its watch and to advise him of any developments, then turned his thoughts inward. His new employer, Obron, had told him that the universe's fundamental operating principle was about to shift from rationalism to sympathetic association, what was vulgarly called magic. It happened arbitrarily two or three times in every eon, with catastrophic effects on the civilizations that had grown up and flourished under the old order. A month before, Caslow would have received that information in the same spirit as his integrator had, as proof that the speaker's sanity was gravely suspect. Since then, he had seen and participated in events that had forced him to revise his viewpoint. Obron had said that the change, when it came, would come swiftly, not like a flood, with the waters gradually rising, more like a field effect. Before the sudden switch, there is a brief period of instability, during which magic becomes slightly more reliable and cause and effect a little less so. We are in that phase now. Soon the curtain will fall, and all will be as new. 
new, but hardly better, Caslow thought. He considered his integrator and the surveillance suite, powerful, sophisticated, the products of millennia of acquired and applied knowledge. When the change came, they would become no more useful than the rock on which the spy gear rested. And all his hard-won skills at building and using such devices, as well as the other abilities that had carried him to the top rank among confidential operatives on the grand foundational domain of Novobantri, would be in vain. He had no talent for magic. He spoke a short word that was completely out of context, yet succinctly expressed his emotions. His situation was far from good and needed immediate improvement. Hiring on as a confidential op with Obron had involved Caslow in a deadly struggle between the magnate and a ruthless rival who worked from concealment. The enemy had sent thugs to kill them both and to steal Obron's collection of ancient spellbooks and magical paraphernalia. He had planted a spy in Obron's household, then caused that spy to self-combust before Caslow could question him. The evidence indicated that this shadowy adversary was likely Falun, who was known to be keeping Obron under surveillance and was certainly seeking to position himself to emerge from the coming transition as a powerful thaumaturge. The artificial hill if improved upon, would make a strong readout. A thought occurred. He told his assistant, Recall Obron's map of ley lines. He was referring to an ancient chart that recorded lines of arcane power that ran across the terrain of Novo Bantry, said to be very useful to wizards. When an image of the map appeared in the air before him, he said, Overlay the position of Falun's and Obron's estates. A schematic appeared. Obron's domain was crossed by a thin red line some distance from his house and the workroom where he conducted his experiments, but on Falun's land, a solid red and an even wider green line intersected. Magnify Falun's estate and show me the lines in relation to his unnatural hill. He swore again when he saw what he expected to see, the redoubt was built right above the crossing point. We have a problem, he said to his assistant. When the moment comes, and it may do so at any time, our little wizard will be as a newly hatched chick without a nest, while the enemy will be a fully-fledged raptor swooping down from its impregnable eerie, all beak and talons. There are no such things as wizards, his integrator said, I wish to make a recommendation. Make it. You should submit yourself to an examination of your mental faculties. Lately you have been confusing Obron's fantasies with reality. You don't accept that the universe is about to change swiftly and drastically? It would be irrational to think so. And uh, I built you to be rational. Indeed. Coslow contemplated for a moment a world without integrators without weapons that aimed themselves, without reliable machines of any kind, a world ruled by the whims of an Obron or a Falun. It was not a pleasant prospect. Of course, he did not have to accept it. When the change came, civilization would collapse. The devices that created food and water and maintained health would fail. Millions would surely die— 
he could find a quiet corner and, with dignity, become one of the countless and uncounted dead. But then he pushed the thought away. He was not made to go meekly down into the ground. He would stay and fight, and, weak-minded as his employer might be, he would not be the worst thaumaturge to rise up in the new times, whereas Falloon, the illimitable, had probably chosen an apt sobriquet, and Caslow knew that of those who will endure no limits inevitably grow into monsters. Only one thing to do, he told his assistant. The examination, it said. I have found a diagnostician. No! We will leave the surveillance unit to watch the readout. He slid down the slope until he could stand up, then made his way to the woods where he had hidden Obron's aircar. He flew it just above the ground for quite a distance before he took it into the upper air and head for his employer's estate. The Omedo Obron paced his workroom floor, the knuckle of an index finger pressed against his bared teeth. The schematic of ley lines meeting at Falloon's new construction hung in the air— Caslow told his integrator to turn it off. Obron stopped and gave him a haunted look. It's not just a readout, he said. Then what is it? He showed me some of his books once, the thaumaturge said, just to rub grit in my eyes. He has a copy of Sholoff's Extravaganza, a complete roundup of nineteenth aeon fabrication spells. I don't know what that means. It means that when the change comes with his full spellcasting power augmented by the ley line node, he can transform that rough assemblage of stone into a wizard's castle. Not a good thing, said Caslow. Monstrous. He would be impregnable, with the capability to lash out in all directions. The proto-wizard sank onto a stool and put his head in his hands. We're done before we've even started. Nothing I have can withstand what he'll bring against us. Caslow's integrator interrupted. Report from the surveyor. Two cartloads of goods are being transferred from the house to the readout. From the tinkling of the cargo, the device infers bottles of liquid. He's moving his wine cellar, Obron said. His most precious possession. He must expect the change to come very soon. He got up and went to his workbench, picked up a set of rune-covered ivory sticks and tossed them, then studied the pattern they made. The node must give him greater accuracy than I can achieve, but it will surely be soon. He swept the sticks to the floor. We are defenseless. Finish. When I was a boy, Caslow said, I won many a fight against schoolyard bullies by not allowing them to set the rules for the engagement. How do you mean? They always liked to talk before they acted. I would hit them while they were still talking, then keep hitting them. Obron waved a defeated hand. Falloon is not a schoolboy. True but he thinks he can set the stage for the fight before it happens. Why should we wait until he is ready? The key line node, Obron said. Do you not know the meaning of the word impregnable? I do, Caslow said, and he isn't. Not yet. 
"'Report,' said Caslow. "'Almost finished,' his assistant said. "'His house integrator's defenses are massive, but not terribly subtle. "'I just need to circumvent another 1,012 scenarios, and—' "'There was a brief pause. "'It's done.' "'Good,' said the op, "'and the camouflage drape on the air car, still holding. "'It will register as a pair of mating moths.' "'Then, over the wall,' said Caslow. He directed the volante to skim the top of Falloon's wall, coming in from the south at moth speed. Then it dropped and sped toward the pile of stone. It stopped and settled to the turf so that the rough structure was between the intruders and the main house. Out we go, the op whispered, encouraging Obron with a strong grip on the thaumaturge's limp bicep. Caslow's employer was shivering. Though the evening air was mild, he clutched a large satchel to his chest and stumbled as the op urged him into a shambling run toward the castle-to-be. "'This is very dangerous,' he said. "'Not as dangerous as waiting for the enemy to outmatch us.' Caslow opened the hold-all he had brought from the air-car and took out a self-aiming disorganizer. It was a more powerful weapon than he expected to need, but for this operation he did not care to be found wanting. He spoke to his integrator using an almost silent, subvocal system he had designed himself. Report. The device's voice spoke deep inside his ear. Nothing to report. Activity. One servant in the cellar, arranging wine. Falloon? His house integrator shows him in his workroom, packing items in a trunk, two bodyguards with him. Defenses, wards, alarms in this structure? Caslow tapped the stone wall. Nothing, said the integrator. Most curious. He is moving from a heavily, if clumsily, defended location to one that is completely undefended. That is because he expects to defend his castle by means magical. So... It's a shared delusion, his assistant said. Is it contagious? Never mind. The op turned to Obron. Can you see if there's anything to attack us or keep us out? His employer looked up from a globe of clouded crystal he had taken from the satchel. Caslow could see milky shapes swirling within the sphere. Obron's voice quavered as he said, He has laid the bases for two spells I recognize. One that I don't, but none is yet active. They await the final steps. Caslow swung the disorganizer on its shoulder strap so that it hung across his middle. He activated its system, waited for the telltale light to glow. Then in we go. He led a still-shaking would-be wizard along the wall until they came to a set of steps leading down into the structure. At the bottom was a door. Caslow consulted his integrator. Latched, but unlocked, it said. He went down the steps, found the latch, and silently lifted it. The door swung noiselessly inward on shiny new hinges, revealing a basement room lit by an oil lamp. A plump, balding man was taking dust-covered bottles out of padded baskets and slipping them carefully into a wall-spanning rack. He moved, slowly, fully absorbed in his task. Caslow stepped inside and drew Obron after him. He lifted the disorganizer and cleared his throat. 
The servant turned, saw the weapon's emitter aimed at him, and dropped a bottle. It smashed on the stone floor, and wine ran past his feet. Over here, Caslow said, gesturing toward the wall beside him. He had to repeat the instruction, because the man was staring down at the fragments of green glass in a red puddle as if it were the worst horror he could imagine. Finally, the servant crossed the distance on trembling legs, his jowly face paste-colored, his eyes huge with sadness. When told to sit, he did so, staring at nothing. Caslow swung the disorganizer aside and drew a restraint from the hold-all, along with a combination gag and blindfold. Moments later, he had the servant fettered, tethered, and incommunicado. As he straightened up, his integrator spoke in his ear. Surveillance reports activity, Falun and the bodyguards leaving the house, heading this way on foot. Arms. Energy weapons. Also, and this is odd, they are carrying antique, spring-operated bolt-throwers. How long before they arrive? Two minutes at their present hurried pace. Caslow turned to Obron. Upstairs, quickly! An inner staircase led from the cellar to a kitchen. Caslow had time to notice that the room was equipped with rudimentary appliances before he found another set of utilitarian stairs plainly meant for staff. They went up again and came out in a sizable room lit by a pair of narrow slit windows. The space was walled and floored in stone, with heavy wooden furniture stacked in a corner. Sheets of paneling leaned against one wall, and a large, rolled-up carpet lay beneath the windows. "'Where are Falloon and his men now?' he asked his assistant. "'I—I I am not sure,' it said. "'Why not? The surveillance suite is not functioning correctly.' Use your own percepts. I cannot. The scans are unreliable. Define unreliable. They are nonsense. I see three men, then a crowd, then no one. Now they appear to be trees. Now some kind of cake. Cease, Caslow said. To Obron, he said, I think the moment has come. Let us hurry. Obron did not move. He had the look of a man who has just experienced an unexpected inner pang. What is it? Caslow said. The other man turned a face toward him that seemed to glow with a new vitality. It had been thin before. It seemed broader now, and somehow more solid. There's a spell I put on myself weeks ago, Obron said. Vil's eyes vivifier. It's supposed to. Hmm. Never mind. I think it has just really taken effect. He took a long, deep breath and plainly drew immense enjoyment from the simple act. Caslow had seen men react much the same way to powerful stimulants. Though he knew they had little time, he asked his employer— the spells Falun started but did not complete. Could you complete them now? The glowing face became thoughtful. After a moment came the answer. Oh, yes. Is one of them intended to defend or isolate this place? Yes. Placats, discriminating delimiter. It keeps out what you don't want in and keeps in what you don't want out. Apply it now, Caslow said, and specify Falun to be excluded. Give me a moment. 
Obron reached into a pocket of his upper garment and withdrew a scarred old Libram. He flicked through its pages with an authoritative air, stopped at one, and quickly read what was there. Then he put the book away, sniffed, and placed his feet in a certain alignment and put his fingertips together in an unusual combination. He paused, as if waiting for a beat only he could hear, then spoke seven syllables. A chill wind rushed through the room, and Coslo felt the air crackle with a silent energy. His teeth vibrated uncomfortably for a moment, and it was as if invisible hands traced the shape of his body and the lineaments of his face. He shivered at the phantom touch, then the sensations were gone. Obron wore a look of pleasant surprise. He looked at his hands, held before him, as if they were new and different appendages. Caslow noticed that they no longer shook. Well, the wizard said, that was... something. Has the spell worked? I should think so. We'll know when Falun tries to cross it. Caslow asked his integrator if it could guide him to Falun's workroom. It made no reply. He tried again, adding a fundamental command word that allowed the device no leeway for prevarication. Oom, said its voice in his ear. Oom, maloom. Then it began to hum a simple melody. Stop that, he said. He had to repeat the instruction with the command word. After another verse, the device went silent. Let's go, the op said. He led the way out of the room into a stone hallway, saw an open door down the corridor. He slung the disorganizer into the ready position, then stopped and checked the weapon. It was inert. He unslung it so that he could use it as a club and crept to the open doorway. He glanced back to see Obron sauntering after him, rubbing his thumbs and fingers together as if the sensation was novel. Beyond the doorway was a large room with a vertical slit of a window. Its walls held open shelves and cupboards, half full of materials Caslow would recently have called junk, but now recognized as magical paraphernalia. The op went to the window and peered out. He saw Falun and his two retainers making their way toward the false hill. The self-propelled trunk had malfunctioned, slowing their progress. The two hirelings had now grasped its handles and were half carrying, half dragging it after the thaumaturge, who kept taking a few quick strides toward their objective, then stopping to tap his foot impatiently as the others struggled with his burden. Caslow looked beyond them to where the towers of the city loomed on the horizon— the distance was too great for him to be sure that he was not seeing a buzz of traffic in the air above the spires. Reflexively, he began to tell his integrator to use its percepts, then remembered its last contribution and stopped. He peered at the far skyline. He thought he saw a thin line of smoke rising. If he could see it at this distance, at the source, it must be a thick column. In a moment it was joined by another— and now that he let his eyes focus on individual towers, he was sure that he saw smoke issuing from near the top of one of the tallest. 
His imagination showed him volantes and heavier airbornes losing their power and crashing to the ground, or losing their senses and slamming into buildings. It was too much to take in. He fought off a shudder. He had enough to deal with already. Down on the lawn, Falloon had scaled the long slope leading to the prominence on which he had sighted his castle to be. He paused where the land leveled out and watched impatiently as his henchmen labored up with his luggage. They stopped halfway up, consulted for a moment, then tried rolling the trunk up the incline top over bottom, but Falloon's shrill squawk, followed by a high-pitched hectoring, returned them to their earlier, more laborious approach. Caslow's original plan had been simple. When Falloon came within range, he would have used the disorganizer. That would technically have been murder, but the enemy's bodyguards were armed, and the op had no doubt they would have shot first if ordered to. Proactive self-defense, he would have deemed it. But now the great change had come, and the disorganizer was nothing more than an intricately fashioned blunt object. Caslow turned to Obron. It's your fight from here on in. His employer had already made his way to the shelves and cupboards and was examining his rival's possessions. He chose a few of them, and after a cursory examination lined up three objects on the workbench. Then he opened his satchel and from its contents added some items of his own. He pursed his lips, pinched the bottom one between thumb and forefinger, humming tunelessly to himself. When will Falloon encounter the barrier? Caslow asked him. The wizard broke off his musings and glanced out the window. Soon, he said. He drew Caslow's attention to the trunk. Too bad about that, he said. Why? said the op. I had a rough idea as to what Falloon possessed, he gestured at the shelves and the bench. These are the lesser part of it. Caslow saw the implication. So what he's got out there, there's some power in it. Can he collapse the barrier? Doubtful. But just because he can't cross it doesn't mean that he can't hurl things through it, at least some things. Oberon directed a thoughtful look Falloon's way. I'll admit he has more learning than I. I'll assume he has more will, though not much more. He gestured toward the objects on the bench. I, however, have a few items, some of them thanks to you, that should even the odds. Who will win? Caslow said. I expect some touch and go, said his employer. Judgment will play a role. His impetuosity and arrogance will weigh against him, and he has one serious problem. And that is, I am in here. Above the node of the red and green, he is not. Proximity may be the key. Moreover, I believe I have progressed slightly farther into the green school. He turned his gaze back toward the scene outside. Caslow joined him. There was a definite pall of smoke above the distant crystal towers of Indoberia now, and a flicker of flames reflected in the shining spires. As he looked, 
A huge slab of One Tower's substance split off near the top and fell toward the ground like an iceberg calving from a sea-touching glacier. As Caslow saw tiny shards fly into the air, he reflected on how the builders would have used constrained forces to hold the great structures together. Now those powers were dissipated. His mind offered him a series of unsought images— all up and down the spray, on the grand foundational domains, on their secondary worlds now themselves grown ancient, even on the roughest minor planets the products of engineering and science would be failing. Great orbitals were falling from the skies, sliders buckling and heaving, throwing pedestrians from their speeding surfaces, towers and arches collapsing, dams yielding to gravity-mad torrents. Again he thrust the apocalyptic visions from his mind. There was nothing to be done about a universe gone mad. There was only what could be done in the here and now. And here came a thaumaturge who would surely do his worst. Falun's men had gotten the trunk up the slope. Rubbing his palms together, the wizard turned from them and stepped briskly toward the structure's main door— a quick stride, then two more steps, a third, though not a fourth, because the small nose projecting from his round face abruptly struck an invisible wall. But the wizard did not just rebound. He was picked up, his feet clearing the ground, then hurled back almost to where his retainers were wrestling the trunk forward. They stopped, gaped, sat down their burden, unslung their weapons, found them dead, and took up the bolt throwers instead. The wizard stood up, shook his head to clear it, and stood staring at the doorway. He struck a precise pose, moved his arms and hands in unlikely ways, and spoke words Caslow could not hear. Then he felt his way forward, his hand outstretched until it was suddenly seized and jerked forward. Then again he was thrown back and down. Falun rose, his face now a moon covered by a dark cloud. He put his fists on his hips and glared at the door. Then he raised his eyes until he was looking up into the window from which Caslow and Obron stood looking down at him. Caslow could now see the whites of the wizard's eyes all around the irises. He need not be able to hear the words that Falun was mouthing to understand their meaning— or the intent behind them. Obron offered the other wizard an ironic salute, then turned to the items he had arrayed on the workbench, and so it begins, he said. If Falloon's weakness was an impetuous nature, he managed to overcome it for the initial passage of wizardly arts. He did not return Obron's salute, but turned and gestured brusquely to his men to take up the trunk and carry it back down the slope. Back on the flat, at a distance of a hundred paces, he bid them set it down. He then stood behind the chest and made a sequence of hand waves over its top, which obliged him by popping open. Falloon disappeared behind the upraised lid as he bent to delve within. "'I think I know what he'll try first, said Obron. 
he stepped to the bench and took up an object that resembled a three-pronged fork of green crystal, a little longer and wider than his hand. He voiced a few sounds over it, and the chamber was immediately filled with a pervasive hum that became a buzz that quickly climbed in pitch until the op felt his teeth vibrating in his skull before the frequency finally became too high for his ears to register. Obron held the fork aloft. It now shone from within, growing ever brighter as the wizard whispered sibilant phrases over it, until Caslow had to turn his eyes away. The thaumaturge carried it to the window, needing two hands to do so. From the manner in which he wove a wandering path across the room, it seemed to Caslow that the glowing trident was being pushed this way and that by invisible forces. The op could not see what was happening outside. Obron blocked the window, and besides, the light from the fork was nearly blinding. His master was still whispering incomprehensible sounds— while struggling to hold the trident in a two-handed grip that put Caslow in mind of an angler trying to control a monster fish. Then, from beyond the window, came a warble of thunder, a sound like a giant gargling on thickened blood. A huge pressure began to build in the chamber, and Caslow had to clap his palms to his ears to save their sensitive membranes from being battered into his skull. Obron grimaced in pain, but his grip on the trident remained strong, and now he brought both arms down so that the three ultra-radiant prongs pointed through the slit in the wall. Instantly, the fork's light was extinguished, and the room shook to a curve louder than the discharge of any lightning bolt. The pressure in the chamber instantly dropped back to normal. The op had to yawn and stretch his jaw to equalize the sudden change. Through spots of color that bloomed in his field of vision, he saw Obron hurry over to the bench, discard the now dull fork, and begin leafing through Hentero's compendium. Caslow went to the window. As his eyesight restored itself, he saw Falun sprawled upon his back in a circle of scorched grass. In the farther distance, the two henchmen half ran, half staggered away, one of them slapping at the back of his head, where small flames consumed his hair. Caslow was about to congratulate his master, employer now seemed an old-fashioned term, on victory, but he saw the more distant wizard raise his head, shake it once, then get to his knees, and from there to his feet. With an air of fell determination, Falun marched to the trunk and stood, looking down into it. Then he cast toward the stone pile a glance so baleful that the op felt something inside him turn cold. Out of the way, said Obron, pushing him aside. He's employing Porthry's basilisk. He's used it to do mice and roaches, then offer us the results as parting gifts, as if anyone would be impressed by stone vermin. 
He sketched a figure in the air. Caslow actually saw the lines of some complex symbol in green fire. Then it faded. So, too, did the chill in his belly. Obron was leaning out the window now, calling in a mocking tone to his dispossessed rival. Caslow heard him say, "'Couldn't go hear your fluxions if your life depended on it,' and— I've seen fancier digitation when the neighborhood loon picks his nose. What are you doing? Caslow said. Obron stepped back from the window. Falloon's weakness, he said, is his tendency to overreach. I must engage his emotions. I think you've already done that, said Caslow, as a stream of high-pitched vituperation sounded from outside. I need him to try something truly large, something beyond his means, that I can then turn and apply against him. And if it turns out to be beyond your means as well? The thaumaturge shrugged. I thought you were a man who could take a risk. A calculated one, said the op. But the mathematics of your business are beyond me. The discussion is now Moot, said Obron, peering again through the window slit. Caslow looked, too, and saw Falloon blowing into the neck of what appeared to be a large red balloon whose surface was marked by occult symbols in gold and silver. The sphere was already twice the size of his head and growing with each exhalation. As I hoped, said Obron, prudence would see him using the breath of a well-prepared subject. The best is a prepubescent boy fed on bread and milk. By using his own wind, he intensifies the force, but risks a rising dissonance that... Well, never mind. Now we will see. He rubbed his hands together and went back to the items on the bench, chose a six-holed flute of yellow bone that had once been part of someone's arm, and returned to the window. Caslow had been watching the inflation of the sphere. Now the red-faced wizard paused to take several breaths. Oberon leaned out the window and called, What? Out of wind so soon? <laughs> That's not the puffed-up bladder of hot air we all knew as Falloon the Severely Limited. The taunt galvanized the puffing thaumaturge. He returned the neck of the balloon to his lips, his face turned first scarlet, then an alarming shade of purple as the figured orb doubled in size. "'Lovely,' said Obron. "'A driven elemental is one thing. An elemental seethed in maniacal fury is altogether a different pail of eels.' Caslow had heard the term but could not fit a meaning to it. "'An elemental?' Obron pursed his lips and blew a short breath through the flute, apparently too soft to raise a note. But the op had the impression that the instrument grew a tiny bit larger. An air elemental, the wizard said, and a very angry one. He is causing it great distress. Outside, Falloon was holding the balloon, now waist-high, by the neck, while his free hand made circular motions above it. The purple had spread to his neck, and his bald pate resembled a large grape of surpassing ripeness. 
And, for good or ill, said Obron, here we go. Raising the bone once more to his lips, he began to blow and finger the instrument, though Caslow heard no sound. Outside, the sphere of air in Falun's grip had begun to move of its own accord, displaying transient bulges and top-to-bottom ripplings of whatever material it was made from. Though it resembled a balloon, its red had not faded to pink as it had expanded. If anything, it was a deeper shade. The symbols and figures on it stood out starkly, shining through the gathering darkness. Caslow looked skyward. A black cloud had formed over the estate, a swirling mass of inky vapor from which spirals of dark gray mist reached halfway to the ground before they were torn apart by eddies of air. Now Falun also looked up, and a vengeful smile split his flushed face. With a final clenching of his fist, followed by a springing open of its thumb and fingers, he relaxed his other hand's grip on the neck of the balloon. Caslow had expected an eruption of gases, even for the inflated sphere to fly off as its pent-up contents were released. Instead, the sphere sat, as if weighted to the ground, while from its open neck issued a white, swirling fog that convoluted and roiled upon itself, seeming as thick as curds. As more of the thick gas emerged from confinement, it formed a long conical shape that began to rotate, at first slowly, then faster and faster as its mass increased. Falun stepped back, his hands busy in the air before him, his mouth constantly moving, the enlarging cyclone hung between earth and overhanging cloud, swelling as it spun at ever-increasing speed. It was paler now, the color of skimmed milk, and as it reached higher, the dark cloud above began to rotate in harmony. The tendrils of gray mist that reached down now grew darker and more substantial, and when they touched the top and sides of Falun's elemental, they were instantly sucked into its spin— Caslow could hear it now. It had begun as a soughing moan, as of wind playing about a house's eaves. But it soon grew to the strength of a gale and kept building as more and more of the overhead cloud was drawn down into the tornado, and now it was a roaring, ear-battering, constant blast. The whirlwind towered up to the sky, where black clouds were racing from all directions to join its ever-growing mass. Falun had stepped back, his clothes and hair fringe flapping as if frantic to escape. He glanced up, and Caslow saw a worried look briefly cross the wizard's round face, but then his fury returned. Falun bit his lip and raised a hand its digits bent into strange alignments. He paused, then brought his arm down in a chopping motion that ended with his forefinger aimed squarely at the window where Caslow stood, and where Obron also waited, bent over his six-hold humerus, blowing his breath across the aperture at one end, his fingers rising and falling, 
Caslow still could hear no sound from the instrument, though the wizard's fingertips covered and uncovered the stops in what seemed a complex pattern. Oberon's brows were drawn down in intense concentration, and beads of sweat stood out on his forehead and upper lip. Impossibly, the sound from outside grew even louder, causing the op to clap his hands to his ears once more. The whirling white cone had absorbed so much substance from the lowering clouds that it was now the color of black iron, and it was advancing steadily toward the half-built castle. Until it met Plackett's discriminating delimiter. To Caslow, it was like seeing dense fog come up against clear glass. The swirling mass of gray vapor flattened against the barrier, and the op could see into the whirlwind's raging center. The spell had clearly stopped the elemental, he thought, but beyond the cyclone he could see Falun's arms still thrashing the air, his mouth opening and closing as he chanted fresh words of power. The barrier did not break, but it began to bow inward. Caslow looked to the wizard he had chosen to follow and wondered again if he had backed the wrong contender. Obron was piping for all he was worth, his fingers flying over the bone flute's stops, perspiration now pouring from his brow, desperation in his eyes, proximity to the ley line node or not. Coslow saw that the attempt to counter Falun's power was failing. Obron had gambled and was losing. Caslow looked around the chamber. Magical paraphernalia abounded, but it was of no use to him. He drew his energy pistol and realized that it was no more useful than a rock he could throw. He let it drop. Then he remembered. To Obron, he said, Keep blowing. I have an idea. He left the chamber and found the stairs to the cellar. The plump balding man was where he had left him, even though the restraint had ceased to function when the great change had come. The servant was sitting against the wall, staring at the broken bottle, his face an image of misery. You could have escaped, Caslow said. The man did not look up. To what? He gestured to the smashed glass and pooled liquid. That was a grand imperial of the 5546 vintage. The master will have my hide. He blinked morosely, then said half to himself, and sad to say that is not a metaphor. It was not your fault. Falun does not trifle with irrelevancies. I am the wine steward. Grand Imperial stains the floor. No more need be said. He values his wine highly, Caslow said. The refinement of his palate is his great pride. And, society being in the process of falling apart, these are now irreplaceable. The major domo nodded, tears in his eyes. They were scarcely less so before the event. And I, of course, am not. Caslow looked about the cellar. There were other racks, deeper in shadow, all filled with dusty bottles. Which of these, he said, are dearest to Falun's refined palate? 
The tornado was taking up a good deal of space now, pressing farther in against the discriminating barrier. Once outside of the castle-to-be, Caslow had to step well to the side of the roaring, swirling mass of air to put himself within Falloon's line of sight. But the thaumaturge, intent on stirring his elemental to even vaster energies, did not notice the op. Caslow held up a dusty bottle. The wizard's gaze remained fixed on the whirlwind, his hands in frantic though precise motion, his mouth chanting a stream of syllables that were inaudible over the constant blast. The barrier bent further, and Caslow felt the first stirring of a breeze that lifted the hair on the back of his neck. He picked up a second bottle from the crate he had brought from the cellar and held both above his head. Still, Falloon remained focused on his elementals management. Caslow tapped the neck of one bottle against another, heard a faint clink over the sound of the storm. Falloon's eyes flicked his way, though his hands and mouth continued their strict machinations. The op tapped the bottles together again, a little harder, the musical sound a little louder. Falloon shuddered. A man intent on his work who was resisting an irresistible distraction— Caslow shrugged, flipped the bottle in one hand so that he was now holding it by its neck, then performed the same maneuver with the other one. He held them both aloft, and his face communicated a silent message to the thaumaturge. You think I won't? Of course I will. A spasm went through the wizard. His hands moved faster, though without losing their precision— his mouth spat inaudible sounds at a frantic rate. The whirlwind not only roared, but keened. Caslow heard in the voice of the wind a frustrated rage that dwarfed any ire he had ever known or seen. Falloon's gaze was locked on him now, the irises again rimmed by fury's white. Caslow offered the wizard another shrug, spread his arms wide above his head, brought them together. The bottles smashed. A cascade of richly aromatic wine and shards of thin glass showered his head, trickled down his neck, and soaked the collar of his shirt. Just before the impact, he had seen Falloon's mouth form a new word. The op could not hear it over the roar of the wind— but he had no doubt that the purple-faced man had shouted, No! Unfortunately for Falloon, the long-drawn-out exclamation was not part of the spell that bound the elemental, a spell whose spoken component must be expressed just so— lest the enslaved and tormented air-spirit break the thaumaturgical bonds in which Falloon had netted it, and become free to do as its nature dictated. The elemental's nature dictated that it take full-bodied revenge on the wizard who had dragged it from its plane, humiliated it with fetters, and lashed it with ever-sharper agonies, at least as such terms apply to a creature of spirit. 
It ceased to batter itself against the barrier, and instead sped across the distance between it and Falun. The wizard raised his hands and tried to say something, but the whirlwind was upon him in a blink of an eye. He was lifted from his feet, turned end over end, and swept skyward in a circular rush as the elemental stretched out the kinks that Falun's spell had inflicted upon its substance. The last Caslo saw of him was a vision of the man's eyes, now wholly white. A moment later, a thin rattle of red drops struck the barrier, followed by a few morsels of flesh and one shattered bone. Then the whirlwind rose into the dark cloud above and tore it to shreds. Before Caslow had crossed the distance to the castle's basement door, the sky was clear. He resisted the wine steward's attempts to seize his hand and rain kisses on it. Just put away the rest of the wine, then find yourself other duties, he said. When he arrived back in what had been Falun's workroom, Obron was leaning against the edge of the window slit, the bone flute loose in his fingers. Caslow took a stool over to where Obron stood. The wizard looked tired, but appeared serviceable. You'd better sit, Caslow said, then helped steady the wizard as he sank down onto the seat, shoulders slumped, head fallen forward. The op took the flute from his hand, it had a warm, greasy feel that raised the bile of revulsion in him, and put it on the bench. Now what? he said. Obron looked up. Vil's eyes, vivifier, seemed to need a reapplication, Caslow thought. The wizard flourished a fatigued hand. First, we bring in Falun's trunk. Then I consult Sholoff's extravaganza and finish the castle. After that, rest, consolidate, plan. Should we not go to Indoberia? Try to help? Obron shook his head. We would be overwhelmed. We sit here safe while the world collapses? What makes you think? The wizard said, his voice sounding as weary as he looked, that we are safe. <laughs> Welcome back. You've been listening to Falun the Illimitable by Matthew Hughes and read by Alex Hyde-White. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and leave a comment there. And if you'd like to spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams. If you are not already a subscriber, check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Once again, this month's issue of Lightspeed Magazine is sponsored by Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Their website is at edgewebsite.com. Skyboat Media 
the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrator Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. Post-production for Lightspeed is in association with yours truly. Our audiobook story collection, Lightspeed Year One, is available from audible.com and includes all of the podcasts from Lightspeed's first year, which was nominated for the Hugo Award. The collection is also available on downpour.com. Just search for Lightspeed and you're on your way. This podcast is copyright 2014 by Lightspeed Magazine. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund, wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.